0: It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every
1: day. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked. On Vikings, as always, I'm your host, your pal, and the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at Luke Braun NFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked On Vikings. You can always find this show on the new Himalaya podcasting app. It is free. It is easy to use. They put together curated playlists based on your likes and interests you can put together your own podcast playlists and share them with your friends they have new features every day go check out himalaya and once you're there don't forget to to subscribe to locked on vikings and if you don't like podcast apps at all that's okay you can always just ask your smart device like siri or amazon alexa hey podcast Locked on Vikings. It will bring you to the most recent episode. Also, before we start, I'd like to quickly wish a happy pride to the LGBTQ plus community. So today we are actually going to take a quick break from the series we have been doing. I've been doing a 90 man series where I go into the background of all the different players. But since we crossed the halfway point in yesterday's show, I figured it would be a fun thing to step back and, and talk about something a little bit more high level and central to the defeat of the Vikings I want to talk about the run game and I want to deep dive now we did when the season ended we did a kind of run game in review but most of that was kind of player by player performance stuff you know who are the good run blockers who are the bad run blockers how did Dalvin Cook do how did Latavius Murray do but I didn't really get to do as much, like, scheme and strategy stuff as I wanted to talk about there, and since it's June and it's a high-level thing and we kind of know what the Vikings' plan is to fix the run game, I-, I wanted to talk about what went wrong in 2018, and specifically, if you follow me on Twitter, you know where I'm going with this. Uh, there, there's, there, I'll, I'll tell you kind of what sp- sparked all of this. Uh, there, there was a post, I'll link it in the show notes, uh, from somebody on, like, Data Science... Football Analytics Twitter that basically did, like, rolling EPA totals for the pass and the run. So, like, if you went up and to the right, that means you had good pass and good run scores, and you saw the Vikings go up modestly, and they were, like, an okay pass team, and then, like, way to the left because they were such a god-awful run team that they, like, actually really separated themselves from the rest of the league, like, being so bad, and you can kind of see that the impact that the bad run game had was as much as other teams were getting out of their pass game. That shouldn't be news to any of you. It was really, really bad. But there was a specifically bad jump in week 11 against the Bears. That Sunday night football game coming off the bye. There was that pick six. That was a really good Anthony Harris game, but it wasn't quite enough. Like these stat lines are just disgusting. Dalvin Cook ran it nine times for 12 yards. Latavius Murray ran it four times for five yards. Like that is just absolutely gross. So I wanted to look into the tape of that one and really break down what happened, and then also use that as kind of a proxy for, like, what happened in the run game on the whole, because that game really included... It was a really nice microcosm, the, the those 13 run plays, of all of the different things that plagued the Vikings throughout the season. You saw all kinds of issues that are commonly cited as reasons that the Vikings run game were bad. But there's a couple things that aren't getting enough talk, and I wanted to talk about all of them. But first, I'm going to table that for a second, and I want to talk about some of the comments that uh, the team has made about the run game, especially comments that Mike Zimmer was making during the season as, you know, things were kind of leading up to John D. Filippo getting fired. Because a lot of people took it, I mean, he talked a lot about how, like, we have to, you know, prioritize the run game. We have to prioritize the run game. And all of those comments, and maybe I'm misremembering this, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but all of these comments, to me, they felt a little bit more like he wants to fix the run game and not so much that he wants to force the run game to get going. You know, I, th- I think a lot of coaches want the run game to get going, But I'm not sure that every coach is universally in agreement that the way to get the running game going is to call a lot of run plays. I think you have to call successful run plays. You have to call a certain number of run plays to generate successful run plays just because of the way that variance works. But I I don't think that just like grinding into, especially against a team like the Bears or other teams with like really staunch run defenses, like I don't think that the way to do it is to just pound it into the, the best part of their team over and over and over again, which there are some teams out there that, do believe in that like you know the Seahawks and a lot of Seahawks media and Seahawks Twitter are very up in arms about Brian Schottenheimer and all this stuff which also kind of made me start thinking about the way the Vikings approach the run game and so I wanted to go in and just like look at this and and talk about like how do you fix this mess because boy, is it a mess. And I think it really hit its lowest moment in that Week 11 game and then the ensuing Seahawks game, and then that's what got John DiFilippo fired. And I think on the whole, in terms and you know, I'll get into way more specifics of this later in the show, but on the whole, you know, fixing the run game is not going to be about you know, pouring in resources into it and just calling it more often. If that's what Kevin Stefanski and Gary Gubiak come in and they say, you know, we want to run this many times a game, I'm going to be really disappointed because I think you can be a lot smarter about fixing the run game than that. I also don't really think it's up to the coach that often. It's more so up to the, you know, the situation and the distance. Like how many... Uh, down in distances are there where you are kind of priced into doing one or the other. You know, on 3rd and 1, you're probably running. On 3rd and 10, you're probably passing. And depending on the game situation, if you have a lead, if you're behind, if you're in a 2-minute drill it's kind of going to decide for you whether or not you run or pass. So looking at arbitrary numbers for run game stuff, this is, again, I'm talking a little bit about Brian Schottenheimer because it's all over my Twitter timeline as well because he gives all kinds of funny quotes about this. Having an arbitrary run number to hit doesn't really make a lot of sense because games just don't really work that way. Like, that's just not really how football tends to progress, and I feel like that's readily obvious to everyone in the world except for people who overthink it. But by looking at you know the particularly bad stretches that the Vikings had, especially in this game, uh, we can kind of identify some of the things that went wrong, and uh, you know not just confined to this game. Don't get me wrong, uh, but th- this did have like a nice microcosm of a lot of different problems. It showcased a lot of the things that caused failures for the Vikings. In the past, so I've done a thread like this before. I'll link these both in the show notes. Uh, in that game, in the after the December Seattle game, uh, I did a thread detailing all of the short yardage failures, many of which were run plays, but a lot of them were ill-advised passes on third down as well. Uh, and I'll link that in the show notes because it's tangentially related. I'll link the thread that I did last night on the Bears game, uh, uh, breaking down the end zone film of every single run play from that game. There's 13 run plays and I broke down all of them. Only three of them were good. So I'm going to, again, I'll get into more specifics later in the show, but first I do want to uh, get some of the operational housekeeping stuff out of the way. So I do need to talk about today's sponsor, which is Grip6 Belts. Uh, today's show is brought to you by Grip6. They're ultra lightweight belts with no holes, no flap, and it is a great Father's Day gift. So go to Grip6. They have a special offer for you at Grip6.com slash Lock, L-O-C-K-E, Grip6.com slash lock go check it out
0: hi this is david lock the ceo of the lockdown podcast network in this crazy unprecedented and unnerving time i know we're all living our lives a little differently i thought we had some of our sponsors over the time that might be able to help you out so we've reached out to them to get you specific offers postmates is giving our listeners 100 dollars of free delivery credit for their first seven days start your free deliveries download the postmates app and use the promo code locked on nba
1: Alright, so for this, uh, I do encourage you, if you are able, if you are the kind of person who listens to this maybe near a device, even near your phone or whatever, uh, to go to the show notes, go pull up the Twitter thread and follow along. Please do not do so if you are a commuter that listens to this show in your car. I do not want you to crash because you are looking at game tape. The grind can wait And if for whatever reason you can't get the film and follow along, I'll do my best to be descriptive so that you can still enjoy this show and not have the visual aid. But I promise this will be a better experience if you are following along with the film thread on Twitter as you listen. So the first play that I want to talk about displays an issue that was really, really prominent throughout the entire game. And it's personnel matchup stuff. So John DiFilippo at this point was really, I thought he was really good at designing plays. I really did like a lot of his play designs. I liked a lot of the concepts that he instilled, especially as a quarterbacks coach, which it seems like that might be where he is most at home as a quarterbacks coach, which is fine. A lot of people are just good position coaches and that's that. But one thing that was particularly wrong very often is that he overestimated the blocking ability of tight ends. And this was a game without David Morgan, so it even, like, becomes even worse that they tried to do this. I mean, like, you can't just throw away all your plays, and I kind of get it, like, eventually you have to have, you know, Kyle Rudolph maybe make a difficult block or two, but he was matched up with defensive linemen constantly throughout this entire game, and that's just not his forte. It's just, like, not what he's supposed to be there for. Like, I get that there are mitigating circumstances, but they should have worked a little bit harder to, you know, make the damage Lesson and, and to soften the blow of that. So on this one, you get Kyle Rudolph one-on-one with Leonard Floyd, who is essentially the Bears' Anthony Barr. Like, he actually got those comps coming out of college. You know, this big, long... Uh, he plays defensive end for the Bears, but he's, like, very long, very lankly, lanky, and he has a long arm. And you can, like, test this at home. If you just, you know, see how far you can reach with just one arm versus how far you can reach with two, you're longer with one arm than you are with two. And that long arm technique, there's no tight end in the league that's going to have that. You need a big, long arm tackle to handle that, and that's why you typically put offensive tackles on guys like Leonard Floyd. In fact, Brian O'Neill himself is a very good matchup for Leonard Floyd, who had some sizing things and was a little bit undersized coming out for a defensive tackle, and that matches up nicely with Brian O'Neill, and it kind of gives him a less of an opportunity to beat up Brian O'Neill. So if I were scheming for this play, I I would try to, as best I can, and I know that they can move Leonard Floyd around and make it so you can't do this, but the best that I can, I'm going to try to get Brian O'Neill on Leonard Floyd as much as possible. Now, the next play I'm going to talk about, if you look at it, it features the drawback of this, of having a guy like Brian O'Neill. He gets matched up one-on-one with Akeem Hicks, big strong nose tackle, and Akeem Hicks bowls him over and blows up the play uh, but the play the tackle actually goes to Kyle Fuller who is blitzing off of the edge and so just to describe this for you you have Kyle Rudolph and Laquan Treadwell are, are stacked up on that edge Kyle Fuller is very obviously blitzing and Leonard Floyd is there as well and so what you would expect is Kyle Rudolph on Leonard Floyd which I just complained about and Treadwell against Kyle Fuller which actually is a reasonable matchup but Treadwell helps double-team Leonard Floyd instead, which I actually like in the abstract, the idea of double-teaming Leonard Floyd with a tight end and a wide receiver, but obviously this leaves Kyle Fuller completely unblocked. He fires off of the edge, and he blows up the play before Akeem Hicks can get there. This is a communication issue, I think. I I think you have to have a center or a quarterback, whoever's responsible for that. It's likely this, I think it's the center for the Vikings. I can't obviously know 100% for sure on every play, but it sounds like, you know, calling protections is a big thing for the Vikings. They're actually working on that with Garrett Bradbury and OTAs right now. They're working really hard on, like, his protection calls and the mental side of things. Zimmer talked about it. Um, So hopefully this improves. But you have to have a center that can, like, see, oh, the corner is blitzing, you know, send a message down the line to the wide receiver, hey, that corner is blitzing, and you are responsible for him. Go do that. You can't just have a guy so obviously blitzing as Kyle Fuller was and then not have anybody there to pick him up. You have to do something about it. Whose job it is to read that varies from team to team. For the Vikings, it's probably the center. But I, I put that more on the center than I do on either of the blockers on Rudolph or Treadwell because usually you don't want blockers freelancing. Like I don't want to to strap a wide receiver, Treadwell or otherwise, with the decision. Oh, I see my guy is blocking. Do I do the double team like the scheme has told me to, or do I you know peel off that and block? I don't want people independently making those choices. I want one center who knows what the hell he's talking about to make all those decisions and then disseminate them down the line. Next up, there was another play. You can watch uh, the breakdown on Twitter, but again, it was Kyle Rudolph losing a block to Leonard Floyd who goes in and blows up the play. Eddie Goldman also did a nice job getting in front of Tom Compton and Tom Compton doesn't use the proper technique when you've been beat called closing the curtain where you kind of supposed to like kind of grab them under the neck and like pull them down. It's not a hold because you're pulling in front of you but if you imagine like the arm motion of closing a curtain you're supposed to kind of just like try to get them to lose their footing however you can. It's like a desperation move when you've been beat completely legal and something that you're supposed to do in his own scheme and Compton fails to do so. And then we go on a little bit of a hot streak and this almost kind of frustrates me more because it like displays that yes the Vikings have this in them and they just never called these very simple plays like this is a very simple vanilla inside zone run play all the matchups make sense the tight ends are on linebackers the offensive linemen are on defensive linemen the the play is designed to go away from Khalil Mack so you've you've schemed Khalil Mack out of the play and he becomes a huge problem later in the game and they only did this one time and I'm furious about it. Compton makes a nice second level block, and, and the whole thing works out nice. It's a big seven-yard gain. This is then followed up by a nice little moment where Kirk Cousins uh, does a hard count. Nobody bites or, or reveals that they're blitzing, which leads Kirk to believe correctly that nobody is blitzing. He audibles into an, another uh, zone run, off tackle this time and uh there's all kinds of space in front of it like pre-snap you can absolutely tell that this is going to be a successful play Kirk Cousins sees that audibles into the play and it works really nicely and Brian O'Neill especially is worth watching on this play because he has a really nice like patient block he lets the defensive end crash inside into that b-gap which is that defensive end's responsibility and he just kind of like lets the defensive end thinks he went. thinks think he won that and then seals him off very nicely and and Dalvin Cook can run around for a really good game. And then a third good play, uh, something called a trap play which I've explained on this show before but in case uh, you need a refresher or you're unfamiliar, it's essentially where you let the defensive tackle run directly into the backfield like as if they've won the play and you have somebody else, usually a lesser player like a tight end or even a, a, a tackle will come in and block that defensive tackle from the side so that tight end actually has leverage and this is one of those times when you can put the tight end on the defensive tackle this time it's Tyler Conklin now Tyler Conklin versus Akeem Hicks he's going to get blown up every single time but the trap play lets Tyler Conklin run in from the side and get Akeem Hicks on that side shoulder and that means that he can actually get the leverage and win even though you know Akeem Hicks is like way bigger and stronger than Tyler Conklin ever could be and then what that means is one of the 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 smallest guys on your team your tight end and one of the biggest guys on their team the the nose tackle have canceled each other out and that gives you an advantage everywhere else everybody else wins their block and Dalvin Cook can run for like six more yards and we gotta drive Cookin but next run play uh Pat Elfline is asked to go one-on-one with Akeem Hicks something you should be able to have you should be able to ask your center to go one-on-one with the nose tackle and not get beat so I don't very much blame the scheme there although elsewhere in the scheme you have Tyler Conklin being asked to pull all the way across the formation and then and then chase a defensive end across like he, he's pulling to the backside and then chasing back front side like it's, the timing of it is very very messed up uh, but the the play fails because akeem Hicks puts pat Elfline into the turf and that's this the strength issue thing that we've been talking about with pat Elfline and and only fitting and appropriate that in this game that rears its ugly head hopefully things will be better uh with a, a whole offseason training program and a move to guard getting the protections out of his mind and all that and so that he can just focus on blocking hopefully that all works out and garrett bradbury can can take over center and you know be more successful at these blocks And then disaster strikes, and I cannot stand this play. I hate it so, so, so much. I'm actually going to split to an ad break real quick, and when I come back, I'll talk about it because I just need to compose myself first. So I will see you all in a second. All right, we are back. So y'all want to hear about a mess? This running play starts at Kyle Rudolph, and, and Kyle Rudolph is lined up across from Khalil Mack, and his job is to get inside of Khalil Mack Uh, and and basically seal him off so that there can be a hole and the run play is designed to go right behind Kyle Rudolph who is supposed to be blocking Khalil Mack does that sound like a good plan to you? because it certainly doesn't to me Instead, Khalil Mack bursts off the ball way faster than Kyle Rudolph could ever pray to get a hand on him, and Kyle Rudolph ends up having to just follow Khalil Mack in and guide him into closing that gap. Now, there's no cut back back lane because of something I'm about to talk about in a second, so Dalvin Cook just kind of has to slam into the giant crowd that is created by this. Uh, Mike Remmers is supposed to pull around and be a lead blocker of sorts through this. This is a power run but Khalil Mack closes the gap before even the lead blocker can get through it, and then you just have this big mass of bodies that Dalvin Cook is slamming into, and he slams into it at an angle where Khalil Mack can actually reach out, strip the ball, and end that really nice drive that was cooking. So first things first, come on, dude, hang on to the ball. It's always your fault when you fumble. But the way the offensive line behaves on this, it's very much like a pinching type of run. It's very much a power run where everybody slams together and essentially tries to create this huge wall that pushes the whole defense back. But what that does is it invites the whole defense to do the same thing to you and and to form up and be the big meat grinding thing that the Bears defense of 2018 was famous for being. I mean, they had Roquan Smith, they have Danny Trevathan, they had... Eddie Goldman, they had Akeem Hicks, Leonard Floyd, Khalil Mack, they had all kinds of superstars all over that front seven, and you're essentially inviting them to be the strongest version of themselves that they can be. This is never a good idea against any defense, but especially not a defense that can, like, specifically punish you for this kind of maneuver. Or if the Bears decide they don't want to meet you mano a mano, which they absolutely do for the Vikings, because all their players are bad. But <laughs> if if you don't want to, you can always like use that to go around. You have all kinds of more space to deal with, and it and it becomes like there's just less of the field that you have to defend when you do that kind of thing you make it so much easier for the defense so from a scheme perspective this is all broken from the get-go and then you have Kyle Rudolph and Khalil Mack and and they truly disrespected Khalil Mack throughout this game I'll just get this out of the way now I went and looked at his matchups for each of the plays he was for all 13 of these plays he was off the field for a couple of them and for the rest of them here is who he was matched up with who is primarily responsible for sealing him off of the play Rudolph three times Reef. Three times. That right there is a huge problem. You should have the left tackle versus the guy who mainly lines up across from the left tackle. Uh, I think he only lined up on the left side, actually. Uh, should pretty much always be going up against your left tackle especially when it's a guy like Khalil Mack. Design your run plays so that Riley Reef is going up against Khalil Mack. That should be a complete no-brainer, but it was so often Kyle Rudolph and he wasn't even he only double teamed him once. It was Kyle Rudolph one-on-one against Khalil Mack three different times and all three of those plays went real real bad. And the next most common person to block Khalil Mack C.J. Freakin' Ham. They put the fullback on him. It's like they were treating him like he was an off-ball linebacker and he's one of the best edge rushers in the entire f- league of football. They also had Conklin on him, on him once and Tom Compton to ended up on him once. So an offensive lineman blocked him four times. A skill player, a tight end or a fullback blocked him six times and then one of the times was the time when they actually ran away from him in his own run and I call that like schemed out of the play which is actually the best way that you can possibly handle a guy like Khalil Mack when you run away from him you from a guy I don't care how disruptive he is you know run away from him and make it so he doesn't matter in the play it's like they just didn't scout the bears at all it's like they were they thought they were going up against a different team this game really frustrated me for a lot of reasons they did a poor job containing Mitch Trubisky they really seemed to not have like a great sense of who to attack in the secondary but this bothered me I think more than anything that they really just let Khalil Mack feast against their lesser blockers but moving on the next play uh was a failure of a combo block so this is something that you'll see in OTA tape all the time and it's something that's very very central to all zone blocking schemes the Vikings did a lot of it last year they're going to do a lot of it in 2019 I don't necessarily have a, a problem with it But it can be difficult. Sometimes you are asking a player to start on one side of a defender, you know, step over to the other side of them, get a hand in their chest, and then move on to the second level and then get a linebacker and, and, like, seal that linebacker off. And it's a lot to do. And on the next play, Pat Elfline can't get through the defensive line at all and the linebacker is free to go blow up the play. If you don't have the personnel for this kind of thing, it can go wrong really, really often. And of course, in 2018, they didn't have the personnel for anything on the offensive line. So this is how things happened to go wrong. Uh, in 2019, I think the changes on personnel will help a lot. I, I think Josh Klein is a lot better at getting to the second level. Uh, Mike Rummer struggled with it a lot. And I think Garrett Bradbury is like known for this. I actually think he's going to come in day one and be really good at it, even, not just for a rookie, but just like good at it, period. But watch for it in, in training camp and OTAs and stuff, and watch for it on the field during games. It's it's a block where they you know like they'll hit the the blocking dummy or they'll hit like a blocking sled and then they'll run over and they'll jump into a mattress. It's a very very classic zone blocking move, and you can actually see that that movement. They're really drilling muscle memory there, and you'll see that muscle memory come into play during the games, which is something that I find really neat. So the next play is actually the only one where I really blame the running back for. Uh, I think Dalvin Cook took the wrong gap it's it's a play where Mike Remmers kind of struggles to make the gap that he's supposed to make and he doesn't quite get across to the right side of him uh and Dalvin Cook still tries to take the planned gap instead of cutting back into the a gap where there's actually a really nice hole I think it was just a a slight mistake in vision because I get that he you know that that a gap was also closing up uh, but it wasn't closing up that fast, and Dalvin Cook has has threaded tighter needles in the past. I think he could have made it, and he decided not to, and to just go, you know, try to make it into the B gap, which was just a worse choice. So the next play is a huge mess in design, and it's probably my least favorite one. And just from a whiteboard perspective, I, I'm okay with a lot of the whiteboard stuff, like a lot of the, you know, general X's and O's. This is the spacing and timing and how things work out. And I, I have a lot more of a problem with the matchups that it created and the inability to, you know. Sp- To play around that and adjust for that in game. But we start with uh, Tyler Conklin one-on-one versus the nose tackle, which is unbelievable to me for a lot of the same reasons we just talked about. And there's also Pat Elfline, who does a hilarious job trying to get to a second level block, which doesn't end up mattering because a bunch of other things go wrong, but if those things hadn't gone wrong, this would have blown up the play also, so it's worth pointing out. But essentially, you start out with Brian O'Neill uh, lining up at right tackle, and Brandon Zilstra lining up just to the right of him, and then Brandon Zilstra will chip the defensive end, who's Leonard Floyd in this case, and then he has to loop all the way around to go... Uh, fill the gap that the safety is blitzing through. And the safety is the one who ends up getting the tackle because Brandon Zilstra cannot do all of that crap in time. And Brian O'Neill essentially, like, stands back and waits for the chip to happen and then goes attack, and attacks Leonard Floyd, but this gives Leonard Floyd time to recover from that tiny little chip from a wide receiver. So the whole thing is kind of defeating the purpose of itself and and nobody really does a good job on anything. And if you just watch the play unfold, there's a lot of people like twisting in and out of each other and people like kind of crossing over each other's faces and, and, and a lot of really cute stuff going on while the Bears just sorta of go and it seems like it's the the play was designed to i don't know look confusing the play was designed to kind of generate angular advantages you know get leverage on people Brandon Zilstra is not stronger than Leonard Floyd but he's going to at Leonard Floyd from the side and that should be helpful but all of those angular advantages are, are forfeit when A, players fail in execution, which the Vikings do all the time in 2018, and B, because the timing is completely wrong. You can get a chip on Leonard Floyd and that makes him easier to block, but not if you're standing there looking at him and then he can get his balance back and recover and now he's just as hard to block. And Leonard Floyd gets away, Brennan Zilstra's man, uh, I think it was Eddie Jackson, ends up getting the actual tackle. Uh, Danny Trevathan could have made the tackle and Akeem Hicks could have made the tackle like four people all could have made this tackle in the backfield because the play was just too difficult for all of those people to execute and you would have had a better chance if you just put guys on guys and and you know make those matchups make sense and see if if you can't get a few yards eked out of it. And then on the very next run play, you have C.J. Ham trying to one-on-one block Khalil Mack, and you have Kyle Rudolph trying to one-on-one block Leonard Floyd. Leonard Floyd actually beats uh, Kyle Rudolph so bad that, like, Kyle Rudolph can't even get a hand on him because Leonard Floyd just bursts off the ball so quickly. He's so good. And he, and he pursues backside—he comes from the backside of the play and chases the whole play down while C.J. Ham is trying to cut block Khalil Mack, but Khalil Mack is, is way too good to just be cut blocked and then, like, call that a day. And truly, an underestimation of Khalil Mack somehow really was the pitfall of the Vikings in this game. Even in—I just remember in pass protection, they left Khalil Mack one-on-one all the time, and he ended up getting a whole bunch of, like— major impactful plays, including, if I remember, a strip sack. And so the last run play of the game, Akeem Hicks beats Mike Remmers, who is one-on-one with him. I, I Again, I don't hate putting guards on nose tackles one-on-one. I think if, you should be able to hold that block at least for a reasonable amount of time. Uh, but Akeem Hicks does beat Mike Remmers, and it forces Dalvin Cook to cut back. But the cutback lane is dependent on Kyle Rudolph blocking Khalil Mack one-on-one. And guess what? That, again, does not work. So all in all, it was really just like a a massive just disrespect to the Bears defense. It really seemed like they thought the Bears defense was the Bears defense of old and they did a poor job scouting, which is even more disappointing because they were coming off of a bye. And really, I I think the Vikings had lost that game, at least in the run game in these 13 plays that I had that I broke down here. They lost that game before they came out of the tunnel because they did not give their players assignments that they could actually execute and have any long shot at success I get a lot of the general principles I get why you want to cut block Khalil Mack I get why you want to you know collapse everything inside and then run off tackle I get why you thought maybe that like pre-snap jet motion which they used a whole bunch I never talked about it because it never deceived anyone but I get why you would think that it would um but I think you know you you it was perhaps naive to think that all of that stuff would work against the Bears because the Bears are good. And when you saw that it wasn't working against the Bears and didn't adjust, I think this game had a lot to do with John Filippo's firing. Um, and, and in terms of fixing it, you know, I think that, like, making better personnel decisions is not something that costs you any salary cap. It does not cost you any draft capital. It does not cost you, you know, any... This is not about getting better players in here, which they also did, and that was also a part of it. But you can just be smarter. All you have to do is be smarter and, and, you know, recognize moments where, oh my goodness, Kyle Rudolph is one-on-one with Khalil Mack. We have to do that. You know, let your quarterback recognize that pre-snap or get a center who can. Motion a wide receiver in to help with that block or, I mean, do something just to to make it so that you aren't frequently allowing their best player to be one-on-one with a tight end. That's the kind of thing that tanks a run game. That's the kind of thing that ultimately tanks a season. The first drive of this game was an eight yard pass and then a negative two yard run and then a one yard run and then a punt like that kind of thing can't happen. And, you know, you have Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen and a quarterback you paid a bunch of money to and a tight end that you believe in and and a retool offensive line. All that stuff isn't going to matter if you can't convert the third and one that it can frequently create. So all in all, a bad game and a lot of the problems that led to it have been expelled uh, including John D. Filippo and Mike Remmers and et cetera. Uh, so, hopefully, these kinds of things happen less often in 2019. But that is going to do it for today's episode of Locked On Vikings. Thank you guys so much for listening and hanging out. I know this was a weird one, this wasn't the typical series that we've been doing. But I figured we could, you know, take a little intermission here and do something a little different. I hope you guys liked it. I hope if you couldn't follow along with the Twitter thread, it still made a, a little bit of sense to you. I, I, I'm sure that that's difficult to follow along with all of that talk without having a visual aid. But in any case, you can always find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at LockedOnVikings. You can find us on any podcast app you like, including but not limited to Himalaya. And you can also find this show by asking your smart device to play podcast Locked on Vikings. Thank you guys so much for hanging out again happy pride and as always skull hey sports fans my name is Ben Beacon I'm the host
0: of Locked On Wolves the Minnesota Timberwolves podcast on the Locked On NBA network the Wolves might be in the middle of what's turned out to be a pretty miserable season but there's still plenty to talk about from the aftermath of the trade deadline to looking ahead at what moves Gerson Rosas and the front office might be planning for the summer to the possibility that all-star snub Carl Anthony Towns could go off on any given night it's still going to be a fun spring tune into Locked On Wolves daily Monday through Friday I'm Ben Beacon with Lockdown Wolves, and we'll catch you next time.